Hello and welcome to the Leaders Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join us on yet another sunny day here in the capital. I'm Matthew O'Neill, and today, as always, we ensure that we have a variety of distinct perspectives on leadership. First, we're joined by Neil Frackleton, Chief Executive of Sefton Women's and Children's Aid, a registered charity providing specialist domestic abuse service to women, young people, and children. Neil, hello. Hi, Matthew. Thank you for coming on the program today. Now, normally on the show, we get straight into leadership, but considering the ongoing COVID outbreak, let's start there. How has uh, COVID-19 affected your operations? So, um, obviously, we are a a charity supporting women and children affected by domestic abuse. Um, As uh, many people will be aware, domestic abuse has been a a high-profile issue in the national news. And... um, we have um, obviously had to adjust to uh, a number of issues related to COVID-19. <clears throat> Excuse me. First of all, at the uh, end of March, we had to close our offices and um, work remotely. So we remained operational throughout the COVID-19 period, but we've had to be supporting our service users. This is adult women and female and male children um, through um, technology, through phone and emails. So we've had logistic challenges, but we've also seen um, a change in the demand and need for our services. So initially we had um, a decline in uh, demand for support because of the lockdown, which meant that women and children affected by domestic abuse couldn't reach out for support. We also had a reduction in a number of professionals, such as the police, um, through sickness, etc., cetera, uh, available to make referrals. Um, we, then our uh, referrals leveled up, uh, the, the demand leveled, and uh, over recent weeks we've seen a rise, which we expected. So um, quite a significant rise. So we're starting to see, as the restrictions ease, uh, women and children seeking support because of um, elements of domestic abuse, family conflict, etc., impacting on them. So it's been quite up and down. Alongside all of that, um, we've seen a lot of interest in the issue from funders. So as a charity. Um, I personally have been working um, as hard as I can to try to secure additional investment to increase our capacity so that we're able to more ably respond to the rise in demand for support. What are the factors that contribute to domestic abuse? Well, domestic abuse is obviously a very complex issue. Um, it, it, it can vary by individual, but some of the sort of common factors um, obviously, within our within the perpetrators, and, and when I say perpetrators, obviously I'm talking about those who are the abusers, who are predominantly male. Um, there can be a number of factors around that: a desire to um, uh, control, around power, um, around uh, ensuring that uh, perpetrators have um, full control of how the relationship is developing, um, and that they try to assert their authority in inappropriate ways over female victim survivors of domestic abuse. There can also be elements around mental health. That might be in terms of the perpetrator's mental health, insecurities, but also in terms of the victim survivor's mental health. So um, adult women who have experienced um, uh, things like difficult childhood experiences that leave them more vulnerable to coercion and control and manipulation by male perpetrators. In addition to that, there can be other wider society societal factors such as 
poverty, although domestic abuse um, can occur in all areas of society. Poverty can make a difference because it means that individual victim survivors have less resources to be able to deal with um, the abuse. They may be more dependent on their male partners, um, particularly obviously we're working with women victims, um, depending on the male um, partners who are perpetrators for financial support. Um, and then, of course, there's wider issues around family support. So obviously those victim survivors who experience domestic abuse and have strong family support networks are more resilient and more able to cope with the impact and more able to seek help. In addition to that, there's a whole area around trauma because domestic abuse does create long-term trauma. Um, and if that's not addressed quickly, that can lead to uh, profound mental health. So we might have women who access our service who previously experienced domestic abuse. The trauma of that means they're more vulnerable to um, current additional new incidents of domestic abuse. So it's quite a complex issue when you look at all those factors combined. Now, of course, uh, as you rightly said, the majority of the victims are overwhelmingly female and young children. What, what sort of um, statistics do you have on male victims of domestic abuse? Um, well, we, obviously, we're not, we, as a specialist charity, we don't provide direct services to male victims. I can tell you what the national figures say. I'm not so clear on the local figures mm -hmm. because um, the male victims locally um, there aren't really many services, to be honest, Matthew, for male victims to access. Um, I'll, I'll start with the national picture. They estimate that around a third of the total victims, adult victims, are male. Um, I'm not so convinced about that myself, although I can't give you a scientific proof of that, because there are additional issues around um, when is a male a victim and when is a male a victim stroke perpetrator. There are clearly, genuinely, male victims of domestic abuse but the numbers that are quoted nationally is around about um, a third male and two-thirds female locally that is a lot more difficult because in merseyside there are some services for male victims particularly for male victims that are dealing with quite acute for example physical abuse so we have um, a national service that's that's run locally called the IDVAs, the IDVAs are the Independent Domestic Violence Advocates, and every local authority um, in England and Wales will have an IDVA service. And the IDVA service does support male and female victims, but that's at the very extreme end, the kind of high end, the high risk end of mm -hmm. the work. We deal with the majority of victims that are, once they've had a high risk immediate support, they'll be signposted to us. So we, we deal with the majority of, of female and children victims. but. In terms of the male victims, once they've received the, the emergency support, there are far fewer services available for them at the moment. So it's difficult to be more precise on figures, for example, within the Merseyside area. Of course. Well, we should move on to the subject of leadership. I always like to start this part of the conversation off by asking the same simple question. What does the word leader mean to you? Um, that's, a, that's a really good question. Um, I mean, I... I, I um, I'm fairly late to leadership in my in my career, as it were, Matthew. I'm in I'm in my early 50s now, and I've only taken on leadership role in really from my 40s. Um, and I've done various leadership courses, so they've probably had an influence on me. I've been lucky enough to do the King's Fund um, leadership course um, 
which is presumably aimed at NHS staff, but it also involves some uh, charity staff as well. To me, leadership is about uh, basically ensuring that there is a consistent, clear vision for your organization in moving forward. It's not about technical day-to-day -day management in terms of operational, for example. It's about stepping back, having an overview, setting that vision with the board in our case, because we are a charity. It's about making sure that book, that vision is clearly communicated to all the stakeholders, your staff, your volunteers, your service users, and your funders, and staying within that vision, clearly, even though it's tempting to drift because resources are there to try and branch out. But um, when, for example, we are a domestic abuse organization, so if we are to develop new projects and services, um, you know, I, I try very hard to make sure that we retain the focus always on the needs of our service users and domestic abuse. If we were to drift too far from that, it would dilute our expertise and it would dilute our, our specialist knowledge. And the risk, therefore, is that we lose the, the sort of depth of knowledge and understanding of the issue. So for me, leadership is about sticking with that vision and making sure your boundaries are clear and I also believe very strongly that leadership is about setting the culture for the organization. So my particular personal style is to go very much down a democratic route. We have really good, experienced, knowledgeable staff in our organization. I, I make, you know, I'm very keen and try, always try to ensure that I listen to the staff regularly. I listen to our services. I listen to our volunteers. And we make collective decisions as much as possible in the best interest of our service users. But obviously, sometimes as, as the leader of the organization, I need to adapt that style and, and make decisions um, because we cannot do it by consensus. But it's about finding your style, sticking to the vision and making sure you embrace everybody as you move forward. How would you describe your personal leadership style? Well, I'm certainly not autocratic. I'm certainly not that style. I never have been. It's not my nature um, and it's not my professional approach either. So I, I would always seek uh, consensus as much as possible. Um, <clears throat> that will depend on obviously the individual issue, but certainly if it's a more significant, profound issue for the organization, I would always seek to talk to staff um, and to the board and to our volunteers and try and get a rounded view because there are many advantages to that. There are skills within all, all our stakeholders. Sometimes I don't even realize those skills are there until I raise an issue and someone says, well, I've had experience of that, and et cetera, et cetera. And if you don't talk to people, you can miss out on those really good nuggets of information that you may have, may have otherwise missed. But also I believe in a culture that develops a sense of trust, loyalty, and mutual respect. And they're words that are easy to use, but in day-to-day -day basis, they're really important. If you share knowledge and information, unless it's sensitive, for example, um, human resources-related issues, as much as possible, people develop trust and they know that you genuinely value their opinion. Um, my worry about a more autocratic style, particularly in an organization where it's a women's organization, I'm the only male member of staff, I'm the leader of the organization, I'm the one with the most power, Obviously, it's quite sensitive in that regard. Um, I'm even more alert to the need to share that power as much as possible and share that decision-making process. And um, it seems to work for me uh, generally. I'm not saying I'm the most successful leader ever, but it, to me, it feels authentic. And that's a word that's quite important to me. I want to be an authentic leader.
Where would you say you developed your leadership style from? Did you have a particular role model? Or were you shaped more by circumstance? Um, I would say honestly both. I have uh, in my life done a variety of, of jobs. I was a teacher originally. I, be, uh, I um, became a social worker, qualified, requalified as a social worker. I've worked in charities for a long time. Um, I've watched. I've watched people who I thought have led fantastically. I've watched people who I feel um, have not been so successful and um, uh, enabling in their leadership style. So I've spent quite a lot of time watching and learning, um, picking up what I believe to be the best bits of what I've seen. I have had some fantastic role models in my career, but I've also worked for some leaders who have developed quite a difficult tense and quite frankly, sometimes destructive leadership style. So I have modeled myself on, I would say, a number of role models rather than one or two in particular. Try to sort of recognize and reflect on and internalize really, really good examples of leadership. But circumstances have changed that as well. Um, I, um, I, I guess I've, I've grown up in what you would call a more traditional middle class background, um, fairly insulated. And now I work in a, in a deprived sort of edge of inner city Liverpool area. And through that, I've had to kind of um, wise up a little bit and, and develop a more streetwise, realistic approach. So circumstances have enabled me to, I guess, not lose my values, but um, toughen up in effect and understand that some people's lives are more complex and the challenges of poverty, something I didn't experience in my own childhood I have, I've had to listen to staff who who are from those you know more more um, deprived and challenging backgrounds and that's helped me have a wider more inclusive more um, informed style so it is a combination of having to I'm not a naturally assertive person but I've had to develop more assertiveness as the years have gone by certainly with leadership roles because sometimes you have to face difficult challenges and you have to be able to develop and flex your style accordingly. Now, unfortunately, our time together is drawing to its close. But before I let you go, Neil, what does the next 12 months have in store for Sefton Women and Children's Aid? I think we've got uh, an exciting time ahead of us. We've been able to leave in more resources because of COVID-19 and a recognition that domestic abuse is a real issue and it's not going to go away. And COVID-19 has exacerbated that issue. Um, we're taking on some new staff. We're going to have a period of growth. Um, and uh, although the issue itself is, is a very difficult one, we're excited about the opportunity to, to step up and, and, and respond to that. So, um, yeah, I think there's more opportunities out there, more opportunities to ex uh, engage with businesses, um, even though they're facing their own challenges. We've had a lot of recent business support. People are interested in the issue. Um, very excited about engaging, for example, women in business because we're a women's organization. Um, and we'll be, we'll be taking on more resources so we can develop new services. So, yeah, I think it's going to be a really dynamic, exciting and um, positive year for us moving forward. Well, Neil, thank you very much for coming on the program. And I'd love to have you back on when things get back to normal. But for now, Neil, thank you. Thank you, Matthew. That was Neil Frackleton, Chief Executive of SEFTA Women's and Children's Aid. And now, if you haven't heard it before, is my exclusive interview with our chairman, Lord Blunkett. Lord Blunkett, welcome. Thank you very much. It's very good to be with you. Um, well, of course, uh, nothing is being said uh, at the moment other than COVID-19. 
which uh, we must touch on. Um, what would your message be to small businesses who are trying to keep going? Well, I think the last ones standing will be the ones that thrive when we get back to some sort of normality. So it's have confidence and courage. Obviously, take advantage as far as you can of the government help. I think that Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, has gone about as far as you could have expected mm-hmm. in the circumstances. There are obviously small businesses that fall between the cracks, those who uh, don't have um, defined premises, can't benefit from the business rate waiver, uh, have not really been able to demonstrate that they can uh, adhere to the PAYE for furloughing staff and, of course, whether they can receive the the grant, 10000 or 25000 all, all of those who can uh, are obviously able at least to benefit from that for the time being and look to the future. But I think the second thing to say, and they don't need me to tell them this as a politician who who did once do a business studies qualification, which is that it will be a different world and being able mm. to think about how that world will look in a year's time and be creative about it and learn from not just what's happening to you at this moment in time, but to others around you and the sector that you're working in, that will be really important. Do you feel that the long-term uh, effects of uh, the COVID-19 outbreak uh, will in some ways be positive uh, for British industry? Well, only in the sense that people are having to be creative, they're having to adjust and innovate. Therefore, they're thinking about more productive, if you like, greater productivity ways of delivering the same service or delivering the same products. And in that sense, I think we'll have temporarily at least very much higher unemployment than we've become used to, but we'll probably have a burst of productivity, Mm -hmm. which will help with the recovery, whether it will help with the inequity of the way in which our economy is imbalanced, both between services and productivity and and the production of goods and services, I'm not sure. What we will need to try and do is to ensure that the geographic imbalance that exists is, as far as humanly possible, is dealt with by both uh, the entrepreneurship and innovation from the bottom up and targeted government help, which will still be needed. And we are now in the throes of the kind of borrowing that we saw back in 2008 to save the banking and economic system. We're, we're having to do that to save the whole of our productive business and mm-hmm. commerce. And I think that will have to be sustained for some time. Do you feel that people will take a second look at global supply chains in the wake of this outbreak? I think there's going to be much more creative ways of using local supply and linking up inside sectors much more effectively. And I hope that the Leaders' Council will be able to play a part in that in the sense that people who Mm. have something in common, a synergy in terms of what they're delivering, whether it's a service or whether it's manufacturing or whatever, uh, will be able to see that there's a, a, a good outcome from n- knowing the sector better, linking with people, not just geographically locally, but those in this country who may not have been on the radar in terms of what they produced for the supply chain. And, of course, um, ensuring, because there's quite a lot of fraud going on as we speak with um, people getting into cyber 
attacks, that they'll also take account of going into the, the cybersecurity side effectively as well. The more we are online, the more people who are working from home, the more vulnerable those businesses and their supply chain become. And that's something to think about as well. How important is strong leadership at the moment? Well, I actually think that it's brought to the fore leadership in a whole range of areas from obviously government itself. And there's been ups and downs with the Prime Minister's uh, severe illness. But all the way through the public and private sector, people have, to use the jargon, stepped up. And they've shown uh, local, regional, national level the kind of leadership that Britain historically was very good at. Regrettably, we've not seen seen the same on the international scene for Mm. all kinds of reasons, Uh, but maybe we will in future. So I think out of this will come experience of people who have seen an opportunity to do good as well as seen an opportunity to provide a good uh, service or goods, uh, including, for instance, shortages uh, for the health and social care uh, system, um, the food chain and the like, uh, but also, I think, in terms of seeing the, the synergy between the private and the voluntary sector and using people's commitment to each other in a very positive way. I'm not sentimental about this. Things will revert. Mm. But actually, I think there is a kind of moment of moral judgment of people feeling that they've got a role to play outside the immediate survival that they're engaged in. And if we can hang on to a little bit of that social responsibility, that will be a very positive outcome. Absolutely. Now, what's your broad view of how the government is responding to this? Are you broadly supportive of their measures? Well, it may surprise people to hear that that I have been very supportive. Of course, there's been legitimate criticisms about the speed of response on protective equipment and on issues relating to testing. But my own view is very similar to the challenge that was made to the Prime Minister of Italy when people said, why didn't you close Italy down faster? And he said, a fortnight before we did it, I would have been considered to be a madman and nobody would have agreed to do it Mm. if I'd tried to move too quickly. And I I think that's something that we need to reflect on here in the UK. We we may have seen the signals elsewhere uh, across the world and taken them more seriously at the time. Hindsight is a wonderful thing, but as someone who's a had his life in uh, the opposite uh, political party to the the present government, I think that with some hiccups and mistakes, they've not done a bad job in what has been incredibly difficult circumstances. And you're absolutely right. In a in a liberal uh, democracy that we live in, it's it's very difficult for people to swallow orders given to them from government. Um, well, the the UK and. Um, and the U.S., and to some extent uh, the Scandinavian countries, have a very different interest, uh, history and, and therefore interest in maintaining the freedom to decide and the persuasion and mm. consent that's required. Uh, those countries that have experienced one way or another totalitarianism over the last century have a slightly different way of coming at this. Mm. I don't want to exaggerate it, but I think that that's why getting the balance right of 
getting people to go along with what you want them to do in their interests as well as the nation as a whole is a sensible proportional balance. And I think we now need to adjust to the coming out of the crisis gradually, uh, readjusting to recovery uh, in the same way. Now, something you've mentioned recently on this balance is uh, the police overreach and the enforcement of the COVID-19 uh, structures that have been put in place. What have they done right and where have they gone too far? Well, I think that they were interpreting what was not necessarily as clear yeah. advice as it might have been for all kinds of reasons because people were feeling their way. I think what's come out of it has been uh, a demonstration by local police services in some parts of the country that they could get people to do what was needed without the heavy hand of drones overhead mm. or people being told that they you know, shouldn't be walking in the street because this was all about self-isolation, not incarceration. It was about getting people not to pass the infection on to each other and therefore to provide distance rather than to make our lives a misery. Those police services that adopted that policing by consent and chipping people along did really well. Those who went over the top, I think, soon got a very substantial pushback. And one of the strengths of our democracy is that you could have that debate. People could say, I'm terribly sorry, we, we think the police force in our area has gone over the top. And that in itself is a constraint and uh, a readjustment. That, that's another strength of... Um, living in a country where you can have opinions and express them without actually being thought to be a fool. Now, of course, uh, the government has faced criticism uh, that they were slow to react, uh, and Boris Johnson wasn't present at the early COVID-19 COBRA meetings. Now, uh, Number 10 has claimed that this is normal practice. Uh, the health secretary often chairs COBRA meetings uh, related to health. Uh, does this tally with your experience as a Secretary of State, or would you have expected the PM uh, to be more hands-on during the initial stages? I think different Prime Ministers do have a very different style. And Boris's style, which I think will now be considerably adjusted, was very swashbuckling. In some senses, delegating is a good thing, uh, as every leader of every business or public service knows those who try to pull too much into themselves end up with a massive bottleneck, a great uh, failure of trust and the inability of people to show what they're worth and to, to demonstrate their capability. So I, I, I'd be very wary of jumping in and saying he was wrong to delegate the essential COBRA meetings. What I was surprised about was that he didn't um, chair the first couple because Mm -hmm. My experience with Tony Blair for the eight years I was in cabinet was that Tony was a great delegator, but he would get a grip to begin with, watch what the difficulties were, and then give people direction and confidence to be able to get on with it. So looking back, I think Boris himself probably thinks, God, I wish I'd spotted the signals from elsewhere in the world more rapidly, and I'd just been there. However, this also raises another issue all of us in positions of leadership need good teams around us. Mm -hmm. I think after this is over, he will be assessing those who really did step up and those who demonstrated their inadequacy. I think we'll probably end up in a year's time with a much stronger cabinet than we have today. 
Well, absolutely. And of course, uh, we've seen a, a significant uh, drop in the visibility of uh, certain special advisors like Dominic Cummings uh, during this uh, entire period. So it'd be interesting to see how that pans out. Um, well, yeah. it's certainly readjusted the role of those behind the scenes with those who should be taking the decisions having received advice. Obviously, there's been a complete transformation in the profile of experts, if I might use that term, who'd previously been denigrated. Mm -hmm. Scientists, medics, people with behavioral science uh, understanding. My only criticism was, were we getting wide enough advice? Were we narrowing it too much to a couple of key centers in London? But that's because I've always been adverse to everything being London-centric. I think there's great expertise, wisdom, experience out in the sticks, and uh, we should use it. Uh, rightly so. Um, now, was part pandemic planning part of your time as a minister, particularly perhaps uh, when you were Home Secretary? Well, it was, but it was on the back of risk arising out of counter-terrorism measures. Right. Uh, I was the Home Secretary for three months when the attack took place in September 2001 on the World Trade Center and beyond. We did an enormous amount of uh, scenario planning, both desktop and, and real. On the back of that, it was very heavily orientated to future developing terrorism risk. I certainly got involved with talking about pandemics. I remember being at a seminar in Edinburgh where the university had done a lot of work itself on the issue of pandemics. And, of course, we, we saw SARS and other things emerging. I, I think it would. people criticised the government for not picking up the report from 2015, five years ago. I think that what happens is human nature kicks in you deal with what you're immediately faced with. Mm. You you can you can sponsor reports. And this is true of business planning, of course, as well, and scenario planning for what business continuity will look like, recovery plans for business, what will happen if um, there's a cyber attack, what happens if there's an energy shutdown. Sh shut um, these kind of things you, you can look at. But you're immediately turning your eyes to what's in front of you. And had we picked up a bit more on the danger from Ebola and SARS and what have you in the past, then we might have said, what if something hits us in the developed nations that we don't have a vaccine for, mm -hmm. that we can't immediately whisk up uh, protective materials or equipment or, for that matter, medicines that help with recovery, all of which we now see are a danger. I think this will make an enormous difference to the planning for the for the years ahead. I hope it will be widened so that we don't just look at what's happened. But very rarely do you see something exactly repeat itself. Some of the circumstances will be, but others won't. So that's why I've put emphasis in what I talk about on looking at the other virus, the cyber attack uh, scenario, mm -hmm. which could be just as dangerous in a, uh, a world of just-in-time provision. One of the miracles of uh, the modern developed world, except for the very poor, has been the distribution of food. A lot of it on computerized, uh, technologically advanced systems 
if that were to come down, we'd be in real trouble. So I think we need to think those sort of scenarios as well. So have a full plan across uh, both sectors, uh, biological warfare, pandemics, and uh, cyber warfare. Yes, and to do so on different levels, I think, again, thinking of thinking global but acting local, we mm. need a lot more to think about what would happen if something took shape that actually broke down those national and global chains and how we would cope. And without, uh, obviously, we've got enough fear and anxiety to last a lifetime without creating even more anxiety. We can think about those things for the future in a more rational way, I think. Now, aside from the physical uh, threat of the virus, one of the things that people are vastly worried about is the effect on uh, the economy, not just national economy, but also the world economy. Um, now, it has been said by certain parties, um, and uh, I'd like to garner your uh, thoughts on this. Is there a danger of the effects of the lockdown being even worse than those of the virus? Were it be prolonged, I fear that that balance would tip the other way. It is about proportionality. It is about balance. It's the wisdom of Solomon, really, to, to get the moment right when you start to move and then to move quickly. There's no doubt whatsoever that we are stocking up not just on the economic and employment front, which will be devastating enough, but on the health and social well-being front, enormous challenges. And they will need careful handling because there's a lot of people whose lives, for a variety of reasons, are at risk in the future on a scale that we've been dealing with over the, the immediate handling of the pandemic concentrating really hard on those affected by COVID-19, those sadly who have died or been seriously incapacitated, that will roll over into the economic, the social, the mental health and cultural well-being of the nation. And that will need all of us to pull together as well. Absolutely. Now, do you believe the government's doing enough for business? I think that the speed of reaction once the scale of the pandemic was clear was very good. I've praised Ricky Sunak for his action. Uh, remember, a chancellor who only just come into office was planning to deliver the budget in the middle of March and has had three, at least three equivalent budgets since. I think he's handled it very well, understandably worried now about what we're doing to our economy. The level of borrowing is sustainable because of low interest rates, but it reaches a point, of course, where it tips over so that you can't then do the kind of structural investment requirements that the government were laying out before and in the March budget. And those will have their consequences as well as a planned payback over many years. I think we've learned something over the last few months, we, we needed to take immediate action. We don't want another round of austerity equivalent from 2010 through to 2019. I don't think the nation, on the back of what's happened and the challenges we have, could take that. And therefore, we need a different plan, economic plan, over a much longer period, just as we did 
from the Second World War all the way through to 2002, when the final American loans were paid off. Now, of course, uh, one thing that's on everyone's lips, um, how much longer do you believe uh, that the lockdown can go on for? I believe that we need to be substantially back in action as an economy in June. This obviously is layered in terms of places where people would meet in large numbers, having to uh, adjust to the fact that it will be longer for them. And sadly, that will involve business closures. It's why the Chancellor extended the furlough scheme to the end of June. Mm-hmm. But unless we, we get things moving in June, I think we'll run into the summer where all kinds of services and industries will have a chain reaction effect. And what happens with one will then have a major impact on another. And then you get the skittle effect where things get knocked down that you hadn't perceived were going to be affected. So I very much, if I were in government, and I always think of things in that context, what would I do if I were in government? I would be on the side from... The second week in May, on the side of the Hawks, in terms of saying we've got to start moving and we've got to do so with the collaboration and cooperation of the public who have got the message, who did behave, who responded magnificently. Let's try and get back, perhaps you know, doing things differently for a time, but substantially getting back to business as usual. And unless we do that, then those areas that can't and wouldn't expect to be back in action immediately get pushed further into the middle of the year in the autumn, and then they become unsustainable. Now, of course, um, one of the other major developments we've had recently, uh, the changes in the uh, the Labour Party. So if we could just uh, speak on the Labour Party for uh, a while. Um, this might sound like uh, an obvious question, but uh, how does uh, Secure uh, differ from Mr Corbyn? Well, I'm biased because I believe the Labour Party um, has come out of four and a half years of a black hole of a nightmare mm. uh, where it neither represented a, a, a credible opposition nor a, an electable government. And the combination was to let those who supported the Labour Party and needed some of its policies uh, let them down very badly. Sir Keir Starmer both is a highly intelligent a professional lawyer who, as director of public prosecutions, led the service well, uh, had to take difficult decisions at a time of austerity, understands the world beyond Labour members, but has been able to do business with those who originally supported Jeremy Corbyn Mm -hmm. and was able to command support from them. His creation of a balanced shadow ministerial team has been very encouraging. Um, I I supported Lisa Nandy, who he's made shadow foreign secretary, because I thought she understood the north of England and um, the the disaffected uh, Labour, former Labour voters. But I believe that Sakir has taken on board those who have something really sensible to offer. And I believe he will be both a a great leader of the opposition, 
more importantly, will then present himself as a credible alternative prime minister. And all governments need an alternative government at their shoulder. Mm. Uh, it was true of us from 97, and it took the Conservatives some time to recover and to get to that position, but they did, and the Labour Party will, and that's crucial for our democracy. All of us need to understand and appreciate that a living, breathing, functioning democracy requires uh, a credible, confident, and uh, in many ways uh, supportable opposition as well as a government that we clearly want to do well because none of us want, as we didn't with the COVID crisis, none of us want the government to fail. We want to see our economy recover. We want our social well-being to be taken into account. We want to overcome deep-seated inequality and poverty. And we want to do it with enterprise and entrepreneurship and business playing their role. And that is about leadership nationally, locally, in the private and the public sector. People with ideas, with confidence, with the ability to pull teams around them. Above all, to have some idea of what it is they want to achieve and a very good idea as to how to achieve it. Now, of course, one of the biggest problems Secure is facing will be tackling the party's anti-Semitism problem. Uh, there has been a recent internal report that has been quite damning. Uh, what's your response uh, to that report, and what does Secure need to do in response? Well, there are two reports. One which is being produced by the Quality and Human Rights Commission, uh, which he will, and has already indicated, will implement in full. The second was a leaked report put together by the supporters of Jeremy Corbyn, 800 pages of private uh, interchanges on social media, which he has, uh, Keir Starmer, set up an investigation to identify uh, who did it, who leaked it, what the content was, does it have any salience and lessons for us, and where necessary action will be taken. So I hope that as he moved very quickly to reassure the Jewish community, so he will be able to take the necessary steps to back up that reassurance with the kind of actions that says that this was a blight on a historic great political party that all of us, all of us were ashamed of. We've been able to put that behind us and to move on to facing the future with confidence. What's the one king, uh, key thing that Secure needs to do to restore Labour as an election-winning party? I think Secure Starmer's major challenge is to convince sceptical voters that Labour has not only reverted to a party that they can support because they can see it acting, developing, presenting as a credible alternative government, mm -hmm. but also that the lessons have been learned from the fiasco from 2015 onwards. In other words, there have to be very clear signals of substantial change, not just the right words, not just reassurance that we're not uh, going back to some of the crazier uh, policies, but actually that we've understood why the electorate rejected those policies so substantially in December 2019. If people get that message, 
they'll understand that the Labour Party has changed as it did in the 1980s and early 90s to become the electable government with the greatest majority and historic majority, even greater than 1945, which I was privileged to be able to take advantage of in 1997 when I joined the cabinet. Now, I know what your answer is going to be to this question, but uh, indulge me. Um, do you think Sakir has what it takes to be PM? Yes, I do. I think he has the background, he has the experience, he has the professionalism, he has the forensic uh, mindset, and he has the confidence to have put a team around him which will ensure that it will work. And those elements are true of all leaders. Ideas, the ability to build a team, to have confidence in that team, uh, and to be able to demonstrate leadership in practice, sometimes at the most difficult times. And, you know, the Leaders' Council, those sharing their thoughts with uh, um, the kind of thing that we're doing now uh, with uh, a podcast, but also joining us in linking up in that network of people who can support and help each other and learn from mm -hmm. each other, that is what needs to be done in politics as it needs to be done in business. Thank well, you very much indeed, Matthew. Well, really thank you for coming on the, uh, the program. It's been a, an absolute pleasure, and I look forward to speaking with you again. Thank you very much, and good luck to all those listening in what has been a nightmare scenario. Good luck for the future. Have courage, have confidence, and yes, listen to those who know more about business than I ever will. Thank you, Lord Blunkett. Thank you. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I have been your host, Matthew O'Neill. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company, or subsidiaries members of staff, other guests, or any other person therein associated.